0: mm <laughs> That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Ellen James, who runs R&D at Small Pharma. It's a company that's leading the world's first DMT clinical trials. DMT is a naturally occurring psychedelic tryptamine found in plants and the brain of mammals. And scientific evidence suggests that DMT offers the potential for rapid acting and long lasting antidepressant effects. And Ellen and I talk all about it. Enjoy. Ellen, thank you very much for joining me today. I am really excited just to have this opportunity to get to know you and get to know your organization a little bit better. And this is a conversation that we have as new to the podcast. So I'm really excited to hear what you bring to the table. Would you mind taking a moment to talk about your piece of the healthcare puzzle?
1: Yeah, so my role is the Director of Research and Development at Small Pharma. Um, Small Pharma is a neuro-pharmaceutical company and we're currently developing a psychedelic-assisted therapy for the treatment of mental health conditions. A particular psychedelic we're working with is called DMT, but we do have a pipeline of, of other related things as well. We are the first company to take DMT into a clinical trial with patients and our patients have ma- a major depressive disorder. The trial itself is in two parts and we recently completed the healthy volunteer part of that study and that was with psychedelic naive healthy volunteers and they found the DMT to be uh, safer well tolerated and that meant that we could move into the patient part which we just initiated a couple of months ago. It's very exciting we're working with many related people so my role in the company is to leading the setup and the management of that clinical trial and so I have to bring together the various parties involved in bringing a drug through clinical trials so academics who have been involved in this research for years, regulators, consultants, project managers at the clinical sites that we work with, the trial doctors, psychiatrists and therapists and I have to manage small farmers interests as well and I really like that that idea of bringing together people that may not have the same like priorities but bringing us all together and and achieving something that we all believe in. So I can tell you more a bit more about how the psychedelic yeah. assisted
0: therapy is how we think it might work? I wouldn't mind if we can just start. Just for people that don't know what DMT is, yeah, how would you sure. describe it? It's a psychedelic drug. It's known um recreationally and it's
1: also a component in a a South American brew called ayahuasca. It's the psychedelic component of that. And it's structurally very similar to serotonin. So it's actually found naturally in plants and in the brains of some mammals it's been detected. It's a small molecule and it binds to some receptors in the brain and induces a hallucinogenic psychedelic trip. It's very short-acting. So when it's given by intravenous injection, or inhaled it can last 20 to 30 minutes maximum in the ayahuasca brew it's longer because in that mixture it can be taken orally which it can't be otherwise so yeah we in our trial give it by intravenous injection it induces a very intense and uh, can be profound visual and other sensory hallucinogenic experience most people lie back and lie with their eyes closed and experience things for the 20 to 30 minutes
0: and then they come back to the room and and they talk about it with the therapist so i live in mexico i live in baja mm. and i've as i've been living here i've learned that this is kind of a destination where people come to have like a shaman-led ayahuasca experience and from what I've heard, it's, you know, they're under supervision, Last, similar to what you're saying, and people can have different experiences. Sometimes, I don't know, sometimes they get sick, sounds like. Yeah. Definitely on, get like,
1: sick. yeah. Yeah. It's,
0: yeah. And it then, doesn't happen with our one because that's part of the mixture that they have in there. Yeah. And then from what I understand, like, they're not, you're not going to be holding a conversation with somebody like like it's whatever it is that they're experiencing it's internal in their mind and there's, there's somebody there just to make sure that they are safe mm-hmm. is that so how similar is that in the clinical trial with what you um, all are doing
1: yeah it's pretty similar we do quite an intensive preparation session with the volunteers so because our psychedelic is very short compared to psilocybin you may have heard of from um, derived from magic mushrooms originally. So that experience can be up to six hours. So a lot of the the therapy is is around what they experience during that time and they're guided through that six hour experience. Because ours is much shorter, there's we give a lot of emphasis to the preparation to make sure people go into it with intentions um, so they can understand what might happen or what might not happen. And then afterwards, there's what we call integration. So what they experienced is talked about and put into context of their their condition or, or the, the things they might want to
0: change about themselves,
1: which they would have discussed with the therapist beforehand.
0: And I imagine that it's somewhat like you had, you had hit on earlier. It's a little bit profound. Like they're able to maybe touch on things or access ideas that otherwise weren't available to them. Mm-hmm. Like what is the response that people are getting? that people
1: with certain mental health conditions have these uh, ruminative ingrained patterns of thought. And it's across a few conditions like OCD and anxiety and and depression, PTSD. So we think that the psychedelics induce an increase in brain connectivity and that new neural pathways can be forged during the trip and in the integration afterwards. So uh, it's kind of like a reset it's kind of theoretical these things have been studied with brain scanning and in in some early trials but that's the kind
0: of the logic behind how it would work for people yeah and is it the kind of thing that somebody would just do once or would they do it multiple times maybe it depends
1: Well, we certainly don't want this to be the equivalent to taking a daily antidepressant. So if that's the case, this is not gonna work. So yeah, it would be once and then it should last, you know, several months. That would be ideal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So from what I understand, hallucin like this type of drug is not something that's addictive. It's not the kind of thing that somebody would even want to do on a regular basis, I, I would imagine. And then in the way way that you're describing it, for me, like just it makes me think of like, you know, when you get stuck in a frame of mind and you're like, I don't know why I can't not think of this certain thing. Even if I know it's not good for me, I'm just stuck in this pattern. Mm. And it sounds like this DMT is able to literally, like quite literally form a new path in your brain so that you can just sort of get out of that stuckness of like, okay, well, let me think a new thought essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, while you're on the trip, every part of your brain is able to talk to every other part of the brain that's why you hallucinate so everything's opened up and then when you come out of the trip and you're with your therapist that conversation can be the forging of a new a way of thinking
0: yeah that's yeah. really powerful that's a super it powerful be, thing yeah I mean, yeah yeah, <laughs> it, yeah how like has it changed I imagine this isn't something that was even available to study for a long time. Can you talk us through like how has this even become possible in you know what is it recent years or so? We've been looking through the, the literature that's existed
1: before in in the DMT research and and there was a there was some old studies 50 60s and then it all ground to a halt. And in the 90s uh researcher called Rick Strassman began to do some early clinical trials with DMT. I'm not sure how he convinced the regulators to let him do it, but he did, and um, and other researchers, our colleagues at Imperial College London, have taken up DMT research. There have been some others in between, but our our sort of inspiration for our trial designs is mostly those two groups. It takes a lot longer, essentially. I mean, it's not impossible. There are just extra steps. In the approvals process, especially around handling, storing, and administering a controlled substance, DMT is in the Schedule One category. Other drugs like um, ketamine are in Schedule Two. So it just makes it more difficult, but it's not impossible. And in the UK, it's become quite a smooth process. The Home Office to issue the licenses, I don't know any instances where they've refused sites licenses to work with these substances so it's happening it would certainly be easier if those extra steps weren't there but yeah
0: well how what's the process for a patient to get involved in one of these clinical trials are they self-selecting or are they getting recommended by a doctor
1: on our studies so far it's been a lot of interest from people that have read and heard about the studies and they contact me or the trial sites i redirect them to the trial sites and they go through an enrolment process. We have several stages of checking people's suitability to be on the study. There are some strict criteria that we have in our trial design. And then there's an interview with psychiatrists
0: and therapists to, to check yeah, their suitability for this kind of study. And then do they end up having a longer term relationship with the therapist or is it like from that day, you know, after they experience the DMT? Are they working with the same person for a period of time? We try to keep to to the same team.
1: There's always two therapists or a psychiatrist and a therapist, depending on on the site. And um, we definitely try and keep at least one of that team consistent throughout the study. The study is following them for three months and
0: they have several in-person and remote meetings in that time. And then can you share with us, like if you have the data available, of, like how, what have the results been for people who've gone through the three months?
1: We have just started the patient part, so I don't have anything on that yet. But the healthy volunteers, we dose 32 healthy volunteers in an increasing dose design study. And um, yeah, we asked them this question, do you wish you had not gone through that experience? And none of them said they wished they hadn't gone through the experience. So we were really happy about that. And um, they, none of them had taken any psychedelic drug before. That was one of the criteria for a moment. And to take something as profound and intense as DMT as your first ever psychedelic drug is a big ask. And they all tolerated it well. So... We're really happy about that.
0: That's great. I mean, no regrets, feeling like it's they were safe, clearly. Yeah. 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 Well, so can you tell me a little bit about you? How did you get involved in this work? Yeah, it's interesting.
1: The way I got here, I did biology uni at Oxford Uni, and then I did a PhD at Imperial. My dad and my mum both work in science. And so for me, doing biology was just the natural home. I tend to choose the path of least resistance (laughs) in my work, or at least in my education choices. I really love English, but I did biology. And yeah, I did my PhD and postdoc, which is the job after PhD in molecular microbiology. So I worked in the field of pathogenic bacteria, uh, studying regulation of virulence genes in um, first plant and then human pathogenic bacteria. And um, I was in my, uh, towards the end of four years of being a postdoc, which is the sort of beginnings of an academic career. I felt like I had two choices. It was either apply for another postdoc position, which is a three to four year position, and then maybe become a, you call it tenured, but like a, a permanent position, or leave academia. I felt that as a postdoc, I wasn't as focused and dedicated to that academic career as some others. Um, I was in a very high achieving, high, you know, successful lab and group and department. And um, I found myself taking on extra things like teaching students, maintaining equipment, looking after the radio chem facility, joining boards and things. And I realised that i I didn't want to dedicate myself to just that one thing. It couldn't be a like a 20-hour-a-day academic, which some people did. I mean, they they loved it, and, and that was their bread and butter. But I just needed more, and I liked that broad role, not just doing one thing. So I thought I should leave academia, which was really hard to do because, like I said, it was my family business, and it was really really painful. But it was the right decision. A friend of mine who I work with, let me know about a job in a clinical trials company. She actually applied for a job there and then her friend told her there was another job, so she told me about it. And I liked it because, I liked the idea of it at least, because it still involves science and research, but um, more job security and more variety. And I thought I'd be good at it. It's more, you know, doing the managing side rather than the hands-on side. So I joined this company called Trio Medicines, but it's actually a tiny subsidiary within a larger clinical trials company, and they run clinical trials for other pharmaceutical companies. But in this small subsidiary, we were developing our own drugs, so I was thrown into the world of drug development, and um, I began as the uh, research manager and then senior research manager and then... My line manager went on maternity leave and then I was promoted to deputy team leader during that time. Maternity leave is up to 12 months in the UK. So she then didn't come back. So I was promoted to team leader. And I think women going on maternity leave is one of the great ways to step up in your career in the UK because you can prove yourself at a higher level. The company doesn't have to commit to it to you at that level and then once you've done it you can see and they can see that you can do that job which was good good for me um so then when then I went on maternity leave and while I was on maternity leave another ex-colleague of mine at um, trio told me about small pharma and their offices are really close to where I lived I spoke to the CEO Peter and um, I was walking around the park with my baby in the baby carrier having the interview with Peter when she was about four months old and then I started at Small Pharma when she was about 10 months old and yeah we start I started at Small Pharma before we were running a clinical trial we were still at the pre-clinical stage with our previous development molecule which is a ketamine based compound. When I started we hardly had any money and there were only five of us and it was really small and really, yeah, just a really nice place to to come and work. And we've grown and now we're running a clinical trial. So I'm sort of finally in my element in small pharma, you know, using all the all the skills I learned in my previous job and uh, taking it even further. You know, this is a bigger Bigger
0: study than I've ever run before, so yeah, it's really really exciting. What is the? I mean, for for any, I've never worked on a clinical trial. I've only really seen it in movies, right? Where is it? Anything of like what you would imagine in the movies? Like, what's the culture and day to day life of having that particular job? Is it white coats in a lab? We're called the sponsor company, and that means that
1: we're paying for it. It's what we want to happen. It's it's all for us we design it and we decide what's going to happen and who to work with but all the actual hands-on parts are done by other people so we've got two companies that are the clinical trial sites they're the ones recruiting doing the dosing doing all the patient interactions we have another company that's analyzing the blood samples and you know lots of um people that we have to add on and and that's the role of the sponsor it is to have the oversight
0: and to make sure it's running and the right people are working on it everyone's doing their jobs properly that sounds like a pretty cool position just as far as coordinating making sure like you like you had mentioned earlier in our conversation of just like making sure all the right people are at the table that are having the right conversations they have the information that they need and sort of being like the spoke in that wheel, you know, making sure that everyone is connected. Is that close to accurate? Yeah, definitely. That, I mean, that, that's really it. And
1: the reason that I, I like that being the sponsor role, it the research feels like it belongs to me and to our company, even though we're not doing the hands-on bit. It's, yeah, we're not providing a service to someone else. Other people are providing a service to us. And, and I, prefer that (laughs) prefer that
0: kind of oversight role yeah right well okay so i imagine that the trial is going to go on for some time it's not something that just finishes and you know like everybody's on the same three months but if somebody wanted to i mean do you publish the results if you wanted to like get the results of those studies where would somebody look for that information
1: we have to publish them within a year of the trial finishing on uh, clinicaltrials.gov which is a kind of clinical trials registry. It's actually US-based, but most people register there. And we have to publish our results there, but we will also publish them in um, academic journals once we've written them up into a paper. And yeah, we're working on our first one based on some of the results from the uh, healthy volunteer part of the first study now. That's
0: super um, exciting. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know, it's just kind of neat. It's a whole different kind of science that is being applied for folks and seems like there's more opportunity for like it's just opening I guess not even just a neuropath, path but an actual path for people who've been stuck in a certain way yeah I mean it, we have to be careful
1: that we don't like give false hope because people could be very disappointed if it doesn't work for them and we are doing it in a very controlled well-designed environment so it's not the same as just trying it out for yourself so how does it give you those caveats? But but yeah, they, it gets really exciting to be doing something that's a very different to what's currently on offer. And what's currently on offer doesn't work for everyone. And so hopefully this will work for some people that those current treatments don't work for.
0: Yeah. What advice would you give to your
1: 23-year-old self? To my 23-year-old self, I would say that you should have more self-belief and you should care less about what other people think. And I know that's hard. and most women don't come to that realisation until their 30s. But I would also say if you don't know what to do then find a job that requires many skills, it's okay to be jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm here I am in this industry doing just fine. And outside of work, I like to keep balanced. I, have, I feel like I have a very balanced life, work-life balance. My hobbies are... Cycling to work, where I get to come in two days a week now, which I think is the right balance of home and office work. I listen to lots of podcasts, um, lots about English language and true crime podcasts, Harry Potter podcasts, and lots of comedy science podcasts. And I'm learning German. My wife is German, and me and our oldest daughter are going to German school on Saturdays, which has been fun.
0: I want to thank you so much for your time today. I've like I'm excited to track where you guys go with this. I think it's gonna be really interesting just to, to see the progression over time. So if people want to connect with you or follow your work or connect with your organization, where would you direct them? So our website's
1: smallfarmer.com and we have Instagram and Twitter as well. And
0: I'm also on Twitter at Ellen Heather. Wonderful. I will so, yeah, include that in there. our show notes. Perfect. Well, thanks for taking this time with me today. No problem. Thanks, Joy. Nice to speak to you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.